Retirement Blues Goodbye, a Long Wayne Wright's Coast to Coast Path, a book by Richard Cowley. Chapter 15 A quote relevant to Chapter 15 Do just once what others say you can't do, and you'll never pay attention to their limitations again. Captain James Cook, 1728-1779 Ingleby Cross to Great Broughton, twelve and a quarter miles, six hours walking. Breakfast was being hijacked by a dreadful TV programme beamed at the diners from a wall-mounted receiver. Colleen resolved the problem. With the flick of a switch, the presenter's dazzling cap teeth faded to black. A collective sigh of relief flooded the room, and not a single plaintive voice objected. The air was enlivened with the convivial hubbub of low babble that mingled pleasantly with the enticing smell of bacon and sausage, the aroma of coffee, and the tangy freshness of newly brewed tea. The four Americans sat together, two of them ready for action, in full headdress. I wonder why Americans wear their hats to breakfast, Colleen mused. The old man in his high-fronted baseball cap pulled tight over his forehead as though in readiness for a strong wind or fast food. His wife's eyes were effectively shaded from the glare of the overhead light bulb by an enormous visor strapped round her temples which pushed a halo of bunched hair upwards, keeping her scalp in deep shadow. The congenial skyscraper tall American passed from table to table, wishing everybody a warm good morning and pouring orange juice for those who wished. During breakfast, I heard that his beautiful wife could not complete the walk. She was suffering discomfort, and would limit her trekking to selected portions of the trail. I imagined a scene in their home in Georgia, where she would entertain guests on the veranda under a blood-red sunset when the topic of their English walking vacation was raised. She'd modestly lower her eyes and admit in a breathless southern burr, I must confess, in all honesty, I did not cover the entire distance on foot. From the beginning, Peter and I had regarded the trek as a sort of quest, a diversion from the normal rather than a test of our fortitude or stamina. As the journey progressed, it had evolved into an ongoing adventure to be lived within, a taste of a forgotten freedom, and had been greatly disappointed had we been unable to complete the distance on foot. I felt sorry for those who had been forced to give up after coming so far. The day's twelve-mile section to Great Brompton would take us into the Yorkshire Moors National Park and onto the Cleveland Hills. The trail included part of the Lightwake Walk and a portion of the famous Cleveland Way. Soon after setting off, a small car drew up ahead of us, and a stocky middle-aged hiker squeezed out. He struggled to harness himself into his huge backpack, and when he'd wrestled it into submission, he resembled a sapped host on which a bloated parasite had found succour. He seemed uncomfortable in his gear, and moved awkwardly with an agitated gait. He fumbled with his guidebook, and stared about in apparent confusion. "'You doing the C2C?' he demanded, stumbling forward, having misjudged the momentum of the load lashed to his back. Yes, I assured him. The path's that way. This guidebook shit, he grumbled, 
clapping the book about so forcefully he nearly lost his footing. Of course, he was an American, and strangely ill at ease for someone I assumed had just spent several days ambling through miles of glorious, stress-free countryside. On the lower reaches of the Cleveland Hills, the motorway noise gave way to a serenity of stillness and silence. At peace we dawdled to admire the elegant proportions of the 18th century Arncliffe Hall and the marvellous harmony of the stone outbuildings. The riches that paid for the opulent buildings may have come from working the estate or possibly other means. It's worth remembering that slave labour provided the energy which brought wealth to many of England's most respected families and paid for their stately homes and lavish lifestyles. I've always found it odd, when on a journey, how often one becomes possessed by a sense of urgency that precludes stopping to smell the flowers, or, in our case, pottering about a priory. Mount Grace Priory was founded in 1398 by the Carthusian Order, whose members lived as hermits, in near-complete isolation from one another. The well-preserved state of the ruined priory resulted from the inaction of James Strangeways, who purchased the land in 1540, immediately following the priory's dissolution, and, ignoring a decree, refrained from destroying the building as the law required. The blustery wind had veered southerly, becoming warmer and softer and buffeting on the face. In the woods the trees thrashed and sang in rustled praise of being. Higher up the hillside, though, even the forest chorus of tall trees, at full protest, failed to stifle the far-off traffic hubbub borne upwards on the wind. It's surprising how far sound can travel across open country, and more specifically, upwards into the blue void. Once, from the precarious platform of a wicker basket slung beneath a hot air balloon, I found it easy to eavesdrop on chit-chat from hundreds of feet below. On Scarthwood Moor, we met a group of cheerful locals. Their dogs were dashing excitedly through the undergrowth, making the most of the outdoors and freedom. On the open hillside of Live Moor, we saw this group again. They were engaged in earnest conversation with the stocky, ill-at-ease American we'd met earlier. They were giving the American directions, which seemed curious, as there was only one path and that stretched straight ahead. The locals moved off, shouting encouragement to their dogs, which bounded through the heather, chasing rabbits. The American didn't budge. He made a solitary and forlorn sight, probing the guidebook for answers that were all there, but not understood. You on the C2C? He bawled, rushing towards us. Yes, it's that way, I replied, pointing down the only path towards the other walkers and their dogs. I was a bit taken aback by his question. Perhaps he hadn't recognised us, although I found that difficult to believe. Peter has white hair and mine's red, and there'd be nobody else about except a group walking their dogs. He appeared more bewildered and frustrated than when we'd first met him. His confused state of mind was difficult to understand. The path on which he was standing was unmistakably the correct path. The guidebook he was using was the same as ours, and there was little doubt where we were. At the Mount Grace Priory turn-off, about a mile back, the trail had become part of the Cleveland Way, and we would stay on this path all day. The Cleveland Way, like the Pennine Way, is a national trail, 
and as such is well signposted with long stretches of flagstone paving. Perhaps he's an ageing screen jockey in need of a few days R&R from the pressure of the New York stock markets, Peter suggested. Whatever his situation, the remedy seemed to have misfired. We moved on quickly in case his condition was contagious. Throughout the day, we glanced back to see if he was following us and to make sure he didn't get too close. In my ignorance, I'd imagined the Yorkshire Boers to be a wild and desolate place, untouched by the hand of man. Not so. The whole area is a criss-cross pattern of paths and trails tramped over millennia. The moor has been heavily quarried for limestone and alum. All things considered, Mother Nature has been busy working her magic rejuvenating the landscape. Tough vegetation reclaimed the hillsides, masking quarry scars and transforming jagged cavities into soft rounded hollows. Naked spoil heaps left from long abandoned mines are being weathered down and camouflaged beneath a covering of heather and bracken. Not all human vandalism is hidden, though. Near Trackdale, on Walton Moor, the hillside is scraped clear of vegetation to provide an airfield. Although the edge of the moor may be an ideal place from which to launch gliders, unfortunately the construction of the airfield has left the escarpment grotesquely disfigured as though corrupted by a nasty disease. For several hours we skirted the northern edge of the Yorkshire Moors, following the acorn symbol, the waymark for the Cleveland Way. In that wide-open landscape I surrendered any idea of size and distance although I was surprised to discover that the moors are 1,000 feet above the surrounding fertile plain. Even at that altitude, we were buffeted by a blustery breeze that flurried the hair and tugged at our clothes. The long panorama across the northern plain and the relative flatness of the moors to the south and west provided a marvellous platform from which to appreciate the vast expanse of sky. The heavens were alive with banks of silent, tussled clouds, tumbling high overhead, forming tantalizing patterns of subtle tones. The surroundings enlivened all the senses. The spaciousness and cushioned air on the face and the intense sense of damp moorland soil conspired to enchant. The autumnal scene of rich browns, subtle yellows, and tan, tinted with russet, enlivened the graceful hillsides contrasting wonderfully with the airy softness of the gleaming tufted clouds, moving high in a celestial sea of hazy blue. All day I reveled in nature's charms, and knew how privileged I was to do so. An unfortunate oversight was failing to stop at the secluded Lord Stone's Café. A stream of sightseers and the strange compulsion to keep moving drove us onward. It was only later we learned of our folly from a fellow trekker. We had foregone an unforgettable ice-cold-in-Alex experience. The Lord Stone's Café landlord kept a mighty and memorable draught bitter. At a high point near our journey's end, a stack of massive rocks completely blocked the path. They were the famous Wainstone. The stack of enormous fractured boulders had required stupendous geological force to heave them to that unlikely place. From a distance they looked more a barrier than they turned out to be. Even though there were a few tight squeezes, we found no difficulty in scrambling over and between the rocks. 
It's odd to think that from the top of the Wainstones we may have shared a glimpse of the sea that long ago inspired a local haberdasher's assistant to become a sailor. No ordinary seafarer, though, but a man who, through dedication and hard work, became a navigational and cartographic genius. Captain James Cook was born and raised thereabouts, and it's not unreasonable to assume that he may have investigated his local surroundings before setting off on a lifetime of exploration and voyages of discovery. Cook rose from being an apprentice on a North Sea collier to command Royal Navy vessels which sailed the seven seas undertaking mapping and scientific measurements and investigations. Along the way, he discovered New Zealand and the east coast of Australia both of which became colonies within the British Empire. It's interesting to note that William Bly, before the mutiny on the bounty, sailed with Captain Cook to the South Pacific as master of HMS Resolute, flagship on Cook's third and fateful voyage. We arrived hot and tired at Claybank Top, and were relieved to see Colleen waiting for us. A little way off, the mob of walkers we'd occasionally glimpsed up ahead clambered into the back of a large green van. I later learned that one of their number had relatives in the area, and he'd phoned ahead to arrange the pickup. It seemed the invasive convenience of mobile phones knows no bounds. In Great Broughton we pulled up alongside Hugh, who had just sprung out of the green van's cargo space. "'Where are you staying?' asked Peter. "'A mile or so down the road,' Hugh replied. "'Hop in and we'll drop you off,' Colleen suggested. "'Oh!' No, scoffed Hugh with disdain. Remember, I'm on a walking holiday, after all. With that, he squared his shoulders, changed into top gear, and shot off along the pavement with the haughty swagger of a purist oozing contempt for the tainted motorists. Some years before, I viewed a TV program about the Camino pilgrimage to Santiago de Compostela in Spain. The program explained the marvels and mysteries of the journey, as well as the pleasures and hardships of the pilgrims. It was the trail that Peter and I would follow in the future. The pilgrims don't only stride along in sandals, as they have done for many hundreds of years. Nowadays they also cycle and travel by car. People with no spare time, but who wish to maintain a spiritual persona by attending the cathedral, jet in to avoid the flies, dust, and searing heat 30,000 feet below. As in all things human, the different approaches to the pilgrimage demand a hierarchy of some sort. On the Camino, the cyclists consider themselves more righteous pilgrims than the motorists, whilst those travelling on foot are well aware of their spiritual superiority to all comers. Those that arrive by jet are scorned as mere tourists, contemptible, no matter which group is consulted. In the guesthouse lounge, I met the male half of the po-faced American couple. He was rather shorter than I remembered. he lost a few inches, having doffed his signature baseball cap. We chatted about this and that, but mainly politics and the invasion of Iraq. I was surprised at his calmness and willingness to believe that their government had credible reasons for the invasion. After only a short exposure to the American, I was impressed by his even-handed and thoughtful views, contrary though they were to my own. I had second thoughts about my reading of the American. After all, I'd been entirely wrong by my initial wariness of dewdrops, Jess. In Great Broughton there were two places to die. For the third time on the trip, someone called heads when they should have chosen tails. 
The result was stale flat beer and bad food. Even the horror of Hugh's gravy-encrusted elephant's ear would have rated more stars than the food we endured. How inconsistent we can be. Sometimes we grumble about poor food and cloudy beer, but make no protest. Other times we complain bitterly at the smallest thing. That evening we said nothing until we were leaving the pub. The beer was flat and stale, I told the barmaid. If you'd brought it back, she replied, I'd have changed it. We weren't the only ones to get it wrong that evening. Before leaving, a grubby, thick-set trekker traipsed into the bar. He was the troubled American who'd followed us for most of the day. He looked utterly dejected and exhausted. Once he tasted the beer and suffered the food, there was every chance he'd become overwhelmingly disillusioned and depressed. Even though his manner suggested he was still ill at ease in his own company, we failed to warn him of what lay in store. With coast-to-coast cohort of our ilk, what chance did the poor bastard have? The other pub was lively and full of diners, including a large table of trekkers. We had a pint, but were driven out by the noise and smoke in the low-ceiling bar. In a mood of mild despondency, we chose to retreat to our beds for the sure comfort of an early night.